This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Welcome to the show. It seems like every week we talk about threats to democracy, and that's because it's an ongoing problem. It is not going to go away until the Republican Party rediscovers democracy. And in the meantime, the threats seem to come from all directions. It comes from the propagandistic right-wing media that peddles in conspiracies and continually propagates false narratives about the economy, about science. It comes from a House Republican Party that is completely dysfunctional, took a zillion tries before they got Mike Johnson, who is himself a Christian nationalist, um, doesn't believe, I think, that America is a multicultural, multi-pluralistic, multi-religious society, but thinks that the Christian version of the Bible is the key to our social and political future. And it, of course, comes from voters. And this is what we come back to again and again. Ultimately, there are tens of millions of voters who have decided that democracy, eh, they'd rather get their way. They'd rather have their guy in office, no matter what the stakes, no matter what the means of putting him there are. They'd rather get their way because they have been so enraged, become so resentful, so fearful of having someone else in power that they're willing to chuck democracy overboard so that they can have their cultural racial champion in power. And this is very dangerous. We need a society, we need a electorate that actually believes in democracy. Because ultimately, if voters don't, if they're willing to trade in democracy, the rule of law, civil liberties, for simply having their, as Trump says, retribution in office, then we're sunk. Then there's no amount of structural change. There's no litigation we can mount. There's no clever messaging we can come up with if people themselves give up on democracy. But we have reason, I think, to be optimistic. After all, Trump won in 2016 in a very, very close election, which arguably would have gone the other way, if not for James Comey. In 2018, they lost ground. They lost the House and Senate. 2020, they lost the White House. 2022 was supposed to be a big year for Republicans. But in fact, Democrats did pretty well. And since then, this is important, they have won overwhelmingly in special elections, which is an indication of where the next election is going to. Obviously, nothing is for certain. Nothing is a guarantee of future success, as they say. But 
there are signs that Americans have lost patience with dysfunction, with chaos, with violence. And despite some troubling signs, it almost seems like we have a large segment of American society that is rational, is pluralistic, believes in the rule of law. But unfortunately, we have a 30, 35% of the electorate who, according to a recent poll, the American Values Survey, believe in violence if necessary to get their way, believe America is a Christian country designed to preserve Western values, whatever that is. They believe that LGBTQ Americans um, are not exactly entitled to equal rights, uh, equal respect. They want to ban abortion outright. In other words, within a pluralistic, relatively stable America, there is a large segment that doesn't share our values, that doesn't share, frankly, democratic values. And what do we do about it? How do we reach those people? Or do we simply defeat them? And are there ways that we can change the system, change the rules to insulate democracy from harm? Well, one way traditionally has been a free and independent press. But as we have talked about very frequently on this show, the press certainly has its faults. And in this moment, the press doesn't seem quite able to the task of covering a political landscape in which one party is devoted to constant lying, conspiracy theories, authoritarian methods of propaganda, and the other side is by and large playing within the rules of democracy. They have a problem in telling the truth when the truth seems to favor one side. Now, of course, if the truth does favor one side, if one side is deliberately lying, then there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's reality. That's truth-telling. But the press, of course, has been raised on this both sidesism, has been raised to have this feigned neutrality. And so, in a sense, they perpetuate the problem. They are not alerting America to the real differences between these parties, to the danger of Republican rule. And worse, they normalize and kind of soothe um, the electorate. Um, They tell us that, well, um, this will simply be another election. The Republicans have their views. The Democrats have their views. And that's not what's at stake here. Frankly, if Nikki Haley were the nominee, and believe me, she is not going to be, um, we wouldn't be so concerned because although I have real substantive differences with Nikki Haley, do I think she's a danger to democracy per se? No, I don't. Again, real substantive disagreement on issues like abortion, immigration, foreign policy, the role of the federal government in our economy, shouldn't be slighted over. Those are very important issues. But do I think she would try to overturn the results of a democratic election? No. Do I think that she would target for retribution her political enemies? I don't think so. And that's the difference between an ordinary election and a high-stakes battle for defense of democracy. And until we convert the Democratic Party, and more importantly, the tens of millions of people who vote for them, back to an embrace of democracy, the rule of law, respect for 
legislative and electoral outcomes. We're going to face a perils of Pauline moment after every election. Will the results be recognized? If the Republicans get into power, what norms are they going to break? So we have been on pins and needles, as it were, ever since Donald Trump emerged from the scene. The good news is in the wake of Donald Trump's election, there have been many individuals, many organizations that have sprung up in defense of democracy. And one of the most important is a group called Protect Democracy. It was founded by our guest today, Ian Basson, as a non-ideological, non-partisan organization to litigate on behalf of democracy, to lobby and to push for legislative changes to protect democracy. It works in the software and hardware protection uh, of fair um, and accurate elections. It works to educate the public. It works to educate the media. It has become an indispensable part of the pro-democracy movement. And its leader, Ian Basson, has been recognized for his work. We like to kid Ian now because he is a genius, not just a genius in the colloquial sense, but he is a MacArthur Grant genius recognized for his extraordinary work. And he'll tell us about that. Tell us maybe what he wants to do with all that money, right? Um, but in any event, we welcome him to the show. He's the perfect guest to talk to us about the fate of democracy. Welcome to the show, Ian. Oh, thank you, Jen. It's so good to be here. It is great to have you. So first, I have to ask you, how do you get to be a MacArthur Foundation grant genius? Does someone put you up? Do you put your name in a lottery? How do you get this fabulous honor? I wish that I actually could give you the answer to that question, but the truth is I don't even know. Um, I received a call out of the blue one day uh, informing me that I had received this incredible honor. It was not something I applied for or sought or even ever considered as a possibility. I, I, you know, like you, I've read about it in the news. I thought it went to trellis and biologists. Yes, exactly, Um, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, from what I've learned, they have some sort of secretive uh, nomination committee and process that reaches out and tries to identify people. And, you know, I, I understand this fundamentally as the MacArthur Foundation trying to underscore in this moment the importance of democracy work and the importance of democracy advocacy. Obviously, I don't do this work alone. We have an incredible team at Protect Democracy of more than 100 just absolutely outstanding democracy defenders and report of a coalition um, that is out there in this moment trying to fight back against the global wave of authoritarianism that has descended on the 21st century. And I, I hope and I think that MacArthur is really trying to um, indicate with this award, which I'm very honored to receive, the importance of that kind of work right now. And, and we're trying to use it to raise attention to all those who are doing it. So what you're saying, Ian, is that the deep state has nominated you and the deep state now sustains you in your work. I I should hasten to add <laughs> that is sarcasm, folks, really. I mean, this is going to be clipped out and now it'll be Ian admits Jennifer <laughs> outs, you know, deep state, Ian Bass and uh, 
you know, founder. Um, Sarcasm is dead these days. It just gets gets weaponized. Yes, exactly. So let me go back to 2016. Um, You had come out of the Obama administration. You were in the White House Counsel Office. You did things like ethics reform and keeping the White House from breaking the law, novel ideas. Um, And then we get the election of Donald Trump. And how do you come up with the idea or what was the genesis for Protect Democracy? So three days after the 2016 election, I get an email from another alumni of the White House Counsel's Office, Justin Florence, uh, who becomes my one of one of my co-founders in Protect Democracy, saying, "Should we organize the White House Counsel alumni to talk about what it is that we might be facing?" And what Justin meant. And what the conversation evolved into was not a concern as two people who'd come out of a Democratic administration that a Republican had been elected, at least in name. It was a concern that someone had been elected who was fundamentally different in kind, really from pretty much any other president that we've had in this country, in this way. If anyone from Bernie Sanders to Ted Cruz had been elected in 2016, I might have agreed or disagreed to various degrees, as you probably would, with various aspects of their policy agenda. But both of them at the time were still committed to the idea of having a constitutional representative democracy in the United States. Now, they have extremely divergent views about what the Constitution means, about what it, what sort of policies a representative democracy should adopt, and even sort of the contours of how that democracy should be managed. But at least at that time in 2016, both Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz were committed to the American idea of representative democratic self-government. Donald Trump never was. He is cut from a different cloth, a cloth of illiberal authoritarian movements that have been rising around the world in the 21st century that worked a little bit like Trojan horses in that their leaders tend to get elected through a normal democratic process and then dismantle the system from within. And what Justin was concerned about in that email was how could we, as people no longer in government, as civil society, as citizens, try to form some sort of bulwark against that happening in the United States? And because, as you allude to, the work that those of us who are privileged enough to have served in the White House Counsel's Office did was often about making sure that those in power follow the rules and stay within the lines of liberal democracy, we thought that we had a window, a unique window, into some of the ways in which a president or a White House might transgress those lines and how those on the outside could try to track them and keep them within them. When you first began, I imagine that being lawyers with your lawyers' hats on, you initially thought of things like pro bono litigation or policy proposals. The problem of ensuring democracy turned out to be much more complicated and diffuse than that. How did you come to appreciate that it wasn't just enough to file a bunch of lawsuits, it wasn't enough to put out some nice policy papers, no matter how nice they were about elections and election reform. How did you come to discover the breadth of the problem and then kind of expand your portfolio of activities? Well, if you go back to the work that I did when I was in the White House Counsel's Office, um, I was trying to train 
White House staff on a set of rules that uh, we had inherited from the Bush administration before us, that they had inherited from the Clinton administration before them, that go back decades, even centuries, that govern how executive branch officials are supposed to go about performing their duties, what they are allowed to do, and what they're not allowed to do. And you learn very quickly in doing that work that most of those rules and practices are not legally binding. They're just traditions, customs, what, what we've learned to call norms which means that they're a choice. Choose to follow them or choose not to. And the choice to follow them over time is enforced through a web of influences, some of which are legal, some of which are legislative and oversight uh, accountability, some of which have to do with accountability via the media and the fourth estate, some of which have to do with a culture of compliance and respect for institutions that exist in the broader American imagination. And that gets trained into people through education and through their prior professional lives and even through their social worlds. And so to try to keep our officials and our government within the confines of a liberal democratic system necessarily requires activating all of those different forces. Democracy is not just a set of laws. It is not just a set of constitutional provisions. It is a way of living. This is what Alexis de Tocqueville observed in Democracy in America is when he went back and reflected on his travels through the early United States, he was as amazed by the culture of democracy that, that lived in the hearts of the people as he was by the constitution that the founders had created. And so we knew from very early on that protecting democracy was going to mean animating all of the different aspects that make up uh, a democratic society. But we also knew that we were starting a startup company. It happened to be nonprofit, but if you're starting up a startup company, one thing that people will advise you is do one thing well first, right? Uh, the first thing that Amazon did was it sold books. Right? It had to sell books well first. And as lawyers coming out of the government, one thing we knew how to do was lawyer. Right, We were hammers, and so everything looked like a nail. But there was a truth to the fact that there were things that lawyers could do because, frankly, if you can get a court to say, don't do that, that's pretty strong medicine. And so when we first started, litigation and lawyering was the first thing we tried to do well, always knowing that to be ultimately successful in our mission of preventing American democracy from declining into a more authoritarian form of government, we were going to need to activate every aspect of American society that contributes to a healthy functioning democracy. And over time, we've built that. We've built a legislative function where we do policy advocacy. We've built a research and analysis function where we essentially have an in-house think tank. We've built a software function where we build technical tools to help our system function. We've built a strategic communications platform where we try as best we can, and here we're trying to do it here, helping the fourth estate to do its critical role as a bulwark in our democracy. And so we've built all those tools and I think for those people listening who are thinking about how do I participate in a democracy, you are by being here as a citizen. We talk, I'm sure we will, in the things that citizens need to do because we all have a role to play. One of the things I worry about, it's very interesting you talk about the culture of democracy and what de Tocqueville viewed, is that once you lose something, it's not so easy to get it back. And we have tens of millions of Americans who have now voted once and in some case twice for an authoritarian figure who has 
very clearly stated that he doesn't believe in the norms of democracy. He's now advertising himself as retribution for his people. And it continually disturbs me, not solely that we have such a figure or solely that we have a political party that's kind of bought into this, but we have millions of Americans. How do we return them to the democratic fold? Do you need to fix the political leadership first or you fix the electorate or you work on both? How do you kind of bring people back to their sensibilities um, that democracy is the best form of government, the only form of government? That we except for should, except for all the others, right? which, exactly, <laughs> the worst, the worst form of government, except for all the others, is yeah. which I think is an important thing to remind people of. Is you know, democracy has is is not perfect. Uh, it is not a it is not a naturally occurring form of government. It's, it's unique and rare in human history. If you look over the course of human civilization, over the breadth of the world, the amount of countries that have been governed democratically over time is a you know, vanishingly small number. And so that just gives us a sense of just how fragile it is. And to underscore your point about how hard it is to create, build up, and maintain and how easy it is to destroy, two different analogies come to mind, and I'm going to separate them so I don't mix metaphors. But one is, if you think about building a building, right, the amount of planning that goes into it, the architectural planning, the engineering planning, the very careful sort of putting together of the structure and the bricks and all the insides, very, very difficult to do. Taking a wrecking ball to it, very easy once you do that. And so that's one way of thinking about just how hard it is to construct a system like the one that we have been building and perfecting over time and just how quickly and easily it could be destroyed. The other analogy that uh, someone said to me once that I that has stuck with me because I think it is so telling and true is that in some ways Donald Trump has been a wrecking ball uh, into the the building of our democracy, but in other ways that may not be his most dangerous characteristic. And you, I think, are getting at the other real danger here, which is they said it's as if he has unleashed termites in the foundations of our democracy that we may not even come to understand the full consequences of for years, if not decades, in the way that when something like that eats at the rot of the foundation, the building may not collapse initially, but it will weaken and weaken and weaken over time until finally one day it does. And so I think thinking of it that way as, as you have is a is a helpful way of thinking about it. And my answer to how do we kind of try to, you know, get the country back into stable footing is actually, surprisingly, this may surprise people, with a degree of empathy, which is to say that most people don't support authoritarianism. Um, And even in their private sort of secret mind, uh, they probably don't think that they do. But in a time of rapid change and uncertainty, in a time in which people, we all, are feeling anxious about the future, and at a time when our politics and our democracy just seem broken and so unable to solve the incredibly challenging problems we have, it's in those moments historically that it can be tempting to think that if we just empower one person or one faction with more power than we would usually give them, that they might be able to fix all these problems, right? That's why you hear in moments like this, I alone can fix it. And 
that's an understandable human instinct. And I think the more we um, understand that that is a dynamic that can play out in moments like this, and frankly, have a degree of empathy with it to try to reach out to people who might be feeling that way in order to acknowledge that anxiety and that temptation, that could be the start of hoping to bring people back into realizing that over the long run, empowering a a single leader like that never works out well. Tempting as it may be, right? Talk to the people in Nicaragua today who thought decades ago that if we just give Daniel Ortega all this power, he might solve all of our problems. And then lo and behold, you can never get rid of him. And if you say the wrong thing, you're going to be whisked off the street and brought into some prison. And we need to, I think, remind people who are tempted of that, that it never works out well. And that, to go back to where we started, for all of its flaws, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. One of the problems I think we face um, in the pro-democracy movement, that is people who don't necessarily agree on ideological uh, objectives, but agree in the institutional form of government and the norms that need to support it, is that when you and I talk about democracy, we have a common understanding. It means elections. It means the rule of law. But when you talk about democracy to people who do not spend all their waking hours thinking about this, they may not necessarily relate or even understand, or they may say, well, democracy was on Donald Trump's side because the election was stolen from him. So do we need a more inclusive vocabulary? Do we need to start talking about things like fair play, like uh, treating people equally, like um, protecting um, the um, freedoms we all enjoy? Is there a richer vocabulary that is more helpful in reaching more people? Well, let's start with what we actually mean, because you, you, you began on this path. What do we actually mean by democracy? Um, and typically what we mean is liberal democracy. And I don't use that term in the way that is colloquially used in the American political landscape to identify people who are on the left of the American political spectrum. I use it in the way it is used in more of the classical political science literature as a form of government liberalism that sort of arose in the Enlightenment and that combined with democracy basically means three things. Liberal democracy basically means three things. One, majoritarian selection of representatives to serve in government through regular elections. Two, that majorities don't have unfettered ability to do whatever they want because there are protections for individual rights that are protected through the rule of law. And then three, a separation of powers and a set of checks and balances. So even when representatives are temporarily given the sovereign powers of the people, there are constraints on their ability to steamroll it and abuse those powers. Those three things, majority selection of representatives, individual rights in the rule of law, and checks and balances are kind of the three stools that make up liberal democracy. So I think important to start there just so that we are all on the same page about what we mean when we talk colloquially about democracy or about liberal democracy. Now, your question is, well, that all sounds really heady, Ian. It sounds like you might discuss that in some sort of graduate seminar on political science, but is that the right language to use when we're having a more broad public conversation about these things? And 
probably you're right. And I certainly political strategists would say, if you want to have a broad conversation and cut out all those words that you just used and use the way that people feel democracy in their lives. And I think there it is largely about freedom. It is largely about protecting the freedom that people want and feel and need to pursue, frankly, happiness, their own version of happiness, that democracy is a way of protecting everyone's ability to choose how to live their best lives. Uh, And the danger of losing it is that in countries that lose their democracies, people see their freedom constrained in all sorts of ways. They are restricted in what they might be able to do professionally, in how they might be able to be represented in government, in what they might be able to read or say or do with their free time. All of those things get restricted because fundamentally, the difference between democracy and authoritarianism is democracy is about choices. And authoritarianism about not having choices. And I think most of us instinctively as human beings like having choices. And that means protecting democracy. There, as we have learned, as we've all kind of gone on this constitutional journey together, educating ourselves and seeing how these ideas play out, that democracy also requires the support of lots of subsidiary institutions and ideas, an independent judiciary a free press, a information stream that allows the truth to emerge, equal rights, equal protection under the law. Those sorts of concepts are essential as well. And those are also things which these authoritarian figures attack. Not surprisingly, if you need them for democracy, the people who are against democracy are going to attack them. They're going to try to turn the courts into partisan adjuncts to their rule. They're going to attack and demean the press. They're going to use propaganda to confuse people about what the truth is all about. When you look at all of those sorts of things, that's a really big task. And it means people in those institutions, in the courts, in the press, have to really appreciate that they're responsible for democracy too. How do you think we've come along in sort of educating those subsidiary institutions and uh, areas of society to let them know, you know, your job is not simply to do X, it's also to protect democratic values? How hard has that been and how far along do you think we've come? Uh, Not nearly far enough. This is such a good question and identification of one of the sort of real challenges bedeviling us right now is that, yes, these authoritarians and these authoritarian movements very intentionally attack all of these institutions that are critical to the democratic experiment. If you look at what Viktor Orban did in Hungary with respect to the independent press and media in Hungary, he used the regulatory state to retaliate against media outlets that he viewed as insufficiently loyal to him and his Fidesz party. How did he do that? So if a media outlet was critical, that media outlet might get investigated or audited or hit with a whole series of ticky-tack fines over things that their competitors in the marketplace were not being hit with or not being investigated with. Or one of the more consequential things that the Fidesz government did was they prohibited 
government advertising dollars from going to media outlets that were critical of the party and steered a fairly significant amount of government largesse to those media outlets that were more loyal to the governing party. And what ended up happening was that the independent media outlets saw their market value drop because they were struggling to remain competitive in the landscape. And in a number of cases, when that happened, some investors would swoop in and offer to buy the property for an inflated price above what it was worth. And the owners not knowing how to steer back to profitability would sell. And then lo and behold, it turned out that the new investors were allies of Orban and his regime. The government would lift the regulatory thumb. The market value of the property would go up. So the investors would make a killing. They would fire all of the independent journalists and hire a bunch of loyalist cheerleading hacks to cheer on the regime. And through that mechanism, there goes an independent free press in Hungary. And frankly, We've seen very similar tactics tried here in the United States in recent years. So very openly during the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump was saying if CNN didn't change what he viewed as an insufficiently loyal editorial line towards him, he would block the merger of CNN's parent company, uh, Time Warner and AT&T. And then lo and behold, once he got into power, what happened? The Department of Justice's antitrust division reversed longstanding policy to go after that merger and attempt to block it. And there was an article recently in the New York Times Sunday business section interviewing some of the leadership of AT&T at the time, who pretty much admitted in that article, they got the message loud and clear that if they were to change the editorial line, which is what Trump wanted, maybe he would go easier on them in a regulatory way. And I would argue, and I don't know that the, C- the AT&T leadership would admit this, that that's exactly what has happened. That you, I mean, the entire episode of... Uh, new leadership being brought into CNN and going to sort of bow down and kiss the feet of some of the MAGA acolytes in D.C. and then host Donald Trump for this fawning, fan-cheering town hall was the direct result of Trump using the Orban playbook. I think that your point cannot be emphasized enough that for all of the work that nonprofit organizations like Protect Democracy and others can try to do to protect our institutions, nobody is in a better position to stand up for institutions than our institutions themselves. And that means that leaders in the private sector, whether they're in the media, need to recognize that doing that, there's no way to win playing that, that Trumpian Orban game, or even not in the media, or I guess Disney is a media company, but looking what's ha- look, look at what's happening to Disney in Florida. If you think, uh, CEO of whatever company that is not Disney, that that's not coming for you at some point in the future if we go down a more authoritarian road, you've got another thing coming. Because at the end of the day, the way that people like Hosni Mubarak ruled as a dictator of Egypt for 30 years was they learned that to stay in power – you force business leaders into a situation where being viable and successful in business and being a loyal supporter of the regime are one in the same. There is no delta between those two. And if you're leading a business, what you want to be doing is not playing politics. What you want to be doing is trying to make a profit and, and, and pad your bottom line. And in an authoritarian system, it's much more difficult to do that because you will spend your time figuring out how to placate your political boss.
One of the institutions which I think has had a very mixed record um, is the courts. On one hand, 60-some-odd courts upheld the results of the 2020 election. We see in the various prosecutions, civil cases involving Donald Trump now, that judges who have been appointed by Republicans, who have appointed by Democrats, have really administered, I think, the law fairly, are processing these cases through the criminal justice or the civil litigation system. And yet, atop all of this, we have a United States Supreme Court, which, because of the way it was populated um, through some clever, uh, I use that in quotation marks, um, political strategizing. And because of, frankly, the types of people that were put on it and a really concerted dark money lobbying effort has created a court that is at an all-time low in credibility, in confidence, that is seen more routinely as an arm of the right than as an impartial body. What is your evaluation of the courts, and what role does Supreme Court reform play in the overall restitution of our democratic institutions and faith in the democratic process? Well, I think you made an important distinction in setting up this question between where the U.S. Supreme Court and, frankly, a lot of the federal courts are on a sort of traditional ideological spectrum from left to right and a more contemporary Trumpian spectrum. So the U.S. Supreme Court right now is an extremely far-right court when it, when you are assessing it on what you might call kind of the, idea, the pre-2016 ideological spectrum. So on all of the hot-button issues about which the United States argued between the left and the right prior to 2016, guns, reproductive choice, um, uh, the criminal justice system, uh, the regulatory state, the court is unbelievably extremely to the right on all of those issues and far to the right of where the American people are. And yet, the court is not a Trumpian court in that every time the court has really faced a question where the personal interests uh, and, the, and the sort of more uniquely authoritarian tendencies of Donald Trump have been an issue, the court has rejected Trump and Trumpism. Um, I say all of this just descriptively so we understand kind of what we are and what we're not dealing with. That said, I do think that over time, you are seeing a shift in a more Trumpian direction, in particular as a result of some of the people that Donald Trump put on the lower courts. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking here of people like Judge Eileen Cannon, who's presiding over the documents case in Florida uh, and who has, has made some pretty out-of-the-box rulings in her prior um, in prior proceedings that seemed from my vantage point, to bend over backwards to help Donald Trump the person in ways that would never have been applied to any other litigant. So I don't want to be too sanguine 
about the courts being, you know, in the long run, a bulwark against Donald Trump and, and Trumpism when you're already starting to see not just judges that he put on the court, but my guess is judges who've been on the courts for a while, but who are human beings who live in reality and are probably, some of them, living in personal social worlds in which Trumpism is ascendant. And if they are sitting and marinating in their personal lives in a social setting, in a professional setting, which everyone around them is becoming more and more taken up with Trumpism, that is probably over the long run going to begin to be reflected in uh, their jurisprudence. Now, that's just sort of a descriptive assessment of where the courts are. In terms of the importance of reform, look, I think one of the really important things for judicial reform in order to protect ultimately having an independent judiciary in this country, is that reform should pass the veil of ignorance test. This is the famous John Rawls test that if you're trying to weigh the merits of a given policy, ask people whether they would support the policy or not if they did not know what their personal standing might be and how it might affect them. In fact, assume that they would probably be the worst situated with respect to that policy. Would they still support it? Um, And so when you ask the question of judicial reform through that lens, some things seem to obviously be uh, seem to pass that test. You know, one of them obviously is having a judicial judicial ethics regime. I think everybody right, left, center would agree that you don't want your judges to be corrupt, and you'd like there to be some ability to enforce um, standards of conduct and conflicts of interest against corruption. The other really crucial thing that I think passes that test is term limits. Um, you have uh, supporters on the left, like Elizabeth Warren, supporters on the right, like Stephen Calabresi, one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, who have all been in favor of judicial term limits because the founders never imagined that people would live to be 105, 110 years old. But the truth is that people who are being put on the Supreme Court today at the age of 45 or 47 or 50 years old, given who they are and given sort of their demographics, are likely to live past 100. And the notion that someone would have that much power for 60 plus years just doesn't make any sense in terms of allowing our country to be governed literally by a dead, not quite so dead hand. And the fact that people are on the court for that long has hyper-politicized the nomination and confirmation process. Not only has it created a dynamic in which people try to time their retirement or frankly even time their deaths um, to ensure that they are succeeded by someone of the same ideological stripes, but it means that every time there's an open seat, it is World War III. And that is not a viable way to preserve uh, the health and integrity of our system. And so adopting uh, a set of term limits seems like it passes the veil of ignorance test would be good for confidence in the courts, would be good for depoliticizing the confirmation and nomination battles. It would. There are some proposals out there that would essentially um, allow for 18-year terms. Every president would get two appointments to the court, um, and it could be done without a constitutional amendment because you could just have justices after 18 years so-called ride circuit, which is go and sit as appellate judges on the circuit courts while not actually giving up their robes, which would allow for us to stay consistent with the constitutional requirement that once appointed, you're appointed for life. So I think that would be a really uh, important and helpful and healthy development for our country. A couple observations. One, I think you're point about the social milieu in which judges operate is important. 
it's also the case that they know on which side their bread is buttered. Uh, if you're a district court, you don't want to be a district court judge your whole life. You want to be an appellate court judge. And if you're an appellate court judge, you have dreams of becoming a Supreme Court justice. So that obviously does weigh in the back of their minds. Let me take a slightly different view of the court. I think it's not just the extremism of the outcome, but it is their approach, their demeanor, their public rhetoric, which has made them very injudicious in recent years. You have Supreme Court judges now that are attacking journalists. You have Supreme Court justices that are giving sort of uh, doctrinal rants about religion and about secularism. There's a language and a kind of behavior that has crept into the Supreme Court that I don't think we witnessed before um, and that speaks of partisanship rather than judicial restraint. I don't know whether that's a function of these people or whether it's a function of a kind of win-at-all-costs mentality that has kind of marinated into the right. I'm curious whether you agree, and if so, what the bar, what the legal profession might do to course correct so that judges um, are not perceived as, for lack of a better term, partisan hacks. Well, you're being perhaps kind there and not naming any individuals, so let's fill in the blank here. We're talking about Justice Samuel Alito, yeah. right? Who And, and one of the proudest um, uh, details in, in my background is that back when he was nominated as a justice, uh, my one of my co-founders from Protect Democracy, Justin Florence, who I mentioned earlier, and I uh, – immediately formed an organization called Law Students Against Alito and um, then put together a report on all we read through, all of his opinions as a Third Circuit appellate judge uh, on just why we thought he was unfit to sit on the Supreme Court. And I remain as proud of that as anything that I've really done because I think you were absolutely correct, which is put aside his jurisprudence, which I disagree with. And, you know, one, one can agree or disagree with a judge's ideology. What I think he has proven is that he's temperamentally unfit to sit on the Supreme Court because, as you alluded to, he has adopted a posture, frankly, of nastiness and condescension and a behavior calling out, frankly, things like I'm doing right now. So as a citizen, I'm allowed to criticize Supreme Court justice, right? I think we should respect the judiciary. I think we should re respect the institution. I respect the decisions and issues. Um, but I'm a citizen. I have the free speech rights to call out the justice. But it's different when it, if, if I, I doubt I will get a, his attention from doing this. But if Justice Alito were to come after me, um, well, that's just different. We're just not similarly situated. Um, he is supposed to be, he is, he is by taking his oath, by donning those robes, by being given this incredible power. With incredible power comes responsibility, which means, you know what? Whether it is me sitting on a podcast or, frankly, the President of the United States giving a State of the Union address, Justice Alito, because of his position, is expected to behave in a certain manner, and he has been unable to maintain that behavior because he seems, and this is, I'm going to armchair psychology here, I'm going to I don't know the man, Unbelievably angry. Yeah. Um, I don't know what was done to him earlier in his life to give him such a sense of grievance, but it 
it permeates his written work and it clearly comes out in his extrajudicial judicial behavior that he just seems incredibly angry. And I don't think it's befitting of a Supreme Court justice. I don't think it is good for the institution. I don't think there's any sort of policy reform for it other than we should use better judgment in who we confirm to the court. We were right then, we're right today. We should be looking for justices who are um, just going to be able to wear those robes with a greater degree of dignity than Justice Alito. Now, I don't want to let Justice Thomas off the hook either because, of course, his ethical behavior and really some of his political associations also do not befit, I think, a Supreme Court justice. So we'll also uh, leave him in that category. Well, and and I don't, look, obviously I said all of that and said nothing about the very serious allegations that were raised against both Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh during their confirmation hearings. So I don't don't want us to move on without, without noting that there are some real serious questions that did not get bottomed out in either of those hearings about whether they are fit to be on the court. So yes, there are some real problems with our judicial nomination, confirmation process, and current court. Um, and I would just hope that as we think about fixing them, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and destroy the independence of our judiciary because there are countries that have faced problems like this. Argentina is one that comes to mind that the medicine was actually more sickening than the disease itself and that it actually tried to fix some of the problems on their judiciaries. They ended up undermining and destroying them. And so we need to be careful that there's definitely reform necessary. And it is also, I think, important to try to correct and preserve the confidence in the courts and the judiciary as an independent bulwark of power vis-a-vis the legislature and the executive. All true. So many people, I get this question over and over again from readers, from listeners, and all the things that I do say, yeah, but what can I do? I feel like I'm powerless. And I think there's lots of things that people can do. Can you, in the declining minutes of our time together, tick off some of the things that ordinary people can do, even if they're not lawyers, they're not in public office? What can individuals do if they want to be in the pro-democracy movement? Well, why don't we go from uh, those people who have more time to those people who have less time? So if you have more time, we are facing an absolute emergency in terms of the outflow of people working on our elections both as paid staffers in local election offices and departments, but also as people who, well, they get paid as well, who work just on election day or around elections. So first thing is contact your local county board of elections um, and see if they need people to serve as election workers, either through election season or more broadly. That is something everyone can do. We need more poll workers, election workers. What a rewarding way to participate in our democracy by helping your fellow citizens to vote. That's number one. Number two, as Bob Putnam wrote you know, more than 20 years ago in his famous book, Bowling Alone, we are losing some of the civic institutions that bring Americans together in the ways that Tocqueville observed were so unique to this country that, for, for, that serve as essentially the, the social fabric of our country at a local and a national level. Um, what are the community organizations in your community and how can you participate more in them? Um, because making those strong again is how we exercise our democratic muscles. It is how we learn how to get along with our neighbors and navigate differences 
and make progress together. And the more we retreat away from those civic groups and the civic institutions, the more we isolate ourselves in our self-selected bubbles solely with people with whom we agree, the more our muscles of how to be in a democracy with our fellow citizens, fellow citizens atrophy. And so participate in your local civic organizations, volunteer for them. Um, that helps knit together the social fabric. And then for those who don't even have time to do that, the last thing I would offer is this. Typically speaking, our elected officials in our government behave in whatever way we as citizens behave. And if we meet each other as citizens with suspicion of our differences, with hostility about what we may not have in common, then our elected officials are going to mimic that behavior. On the other hand, if we meet our fellow citizens with whom we may have differences with curiosity and seek to bridge those divides, then our government is going to reflect that behavior as well. And that is something that we can do in our daily lives, just as people living in America in the 21st century. And importantly, it is a brave and courageous act, especially now, at a moment when everywhere you look, it seems we are at each other's throats. We are almost looking for reasons to be angry at one another. If you can be the person in your family, in your workplace, in your community, who models turning the tide on that current dominant ethos and being the person who says, I'm actually going to reach out to people with whom I disagree with empathy and curiosity, you can model that behavior for others and be an incredible pillar of democratic renewal. And that's something that we all can do. Absolutely. I would add just a few small things that other people can do. One is support local journalism. There are many state capitals, many cities where a lot of the business of government gets done that don't have viable, robust local media. It's really important that people get coverage of what their state houses do, of what their county boards do. Um, so supporting local media. Second, I would suggest people limit social media. It is a toxic stew that as rewarding or as gripping as it may seem, limit that. It will makes you feel that much worse about your fellow man. It is not productive. You could be using all that time to do one of the things that Ian just suggested. So moderate your own social media use. And the other thing I would say is there are organizations out there like Protect Democracy a slew of them that promote democracy, that litigate for democracy, that inform voters, um, and those need financial support. They need volunteers. They need financial support. Um, so whether it's a group that advocates for voting rights reform or it's a group that advocates for some of the social networking that you talked about where groups of various dispositions get together, we can all write a check. And although that's not necessarily the same as actually doing something, these groups do need money. Um, you are, um, you're a genius and you've got a nice grant, but you need money. And all the other groups out there that are doing this work need money and they need financial support. And the last thing I would say is, I think people don't appreciate 
how much politicians, writers, editors respond to a polite, succinct, well-thought-out message. That if you write a screed, no reporter is going to listen to it. If you write a verbose, you know, go to hell and, you know, your mother too letter to a politician, the staffer is going to throw it away. But these people actually do care when you take the time to thoughtfully, concisely, politely reach out to all the players in our political network. Um, And I think that's kind of a lost art. People say, well, they're not going to pay attention to me. They don't care what I say. They actually do. They get so few of these that you carry disproportionate weight when you say something intelligent, when you say something in a polite tone. And the last thing I would say is show up. Show up to elections. Show up when your politicians hold a town square. Show up to your school board meeting and don't be one of those people who are yelling and screaming and threatening the poor local people who are on those boards, but show up, care, express pro-democratic values. For every screamer and yeller out there, there needs to be a sane, sober, respectful voice that also shows up. And you can't cede the public square to crazy, malicious, nasty people. So I hope those are things that people consider as well. So Ian, where can people find your work? Tell us about your website, your activities, what sort of things should people look for when they're curious about Protect Democracy? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you go to protectdemocracy.org, not only can you help us sustain this work by contributing, but also at the bottom of the homepage are a list of ways that people can, just as Jan and I were talking about, get involved in protecting democracy. On threads, we are at Protect Democracy. So please come and join us there. And I'm so grateful for the chance to talk to all the listeners on the show and Jen for your incredibly principled voice in recent years, um, standing up for democracy across ideological and political divides and for the principle that democracy might be the worst form of government other than all the others, but it's our job to pass on a healthier one to the next generation. Well, thank you for joining us, Ian. Thank you for all your work and your terrific staff, which really is um, really some of the most patriotic people I know and do wonderful work every day. So thank you. And uh, we hope to have you back soon. Happily. And that was Ian Basson. If the work of saving democracy seems daunting, I think you're on to something. I don't think I fully appreciated how much effort this takes. We have taken democracy for granted for so long that when things began to unravel in 2016, we didn't appreciate that not only is it a full-time job, but it's a full-time job of a lot of different people. It's not just people in the federal government. It's not just people in the federal bureaucracy. It's people in state governments, people in local governments. It's in the courts. It's in all aspects of society. And when people think, well, what can I do for democracy? It does remind me that democracy is supposed to be a participatory sport. 
we for a long time have just, I think, taken it for granted that government was kind of kind of operate um, whatever the ideology, things would continue on much the same. And I think we learned that if you elect people who are really not committed to the democratic experience, things can unravel fast. And that puts the onus back on us to take this seriously. And not simply to, in our own minds, bargain away democracy. Well, I kind of like those tax cuts. Or I really want to have them do something about the border. Therefore, well, he'll break the rules, but we'll elect Donald Trump. You have to become a one-issue voter with that issue being democracy. Because let's face it, nothing that you want is really attainable unless we have a functioning democracy, a functioning judiciary, an honest bureaucracy that's going to carry out the will of the people. If you don't, then you're going to be at the whim of whichever dictator is around. Then you're going to be at the whim of propagandists and of extreme ideologues. If you want progress on the environment, or you want a certain economic policy, or you want better education, or you want a certain foreign policy, you better have a functioning democracy because that's the only way that your interests, your views get translated into policy. And I think some of these fundamental facts that we just took for granted, we've learned are so fragile, are so close to really um, the danger zone. And I think for all of his faults, President Biden does get this. He ran, as he'd like to say, for the soul of American democracy or the soul of America. But along the way, he has very often spoke about this threat to democracy. He spoke about it recently at a appearance at the John McCain um, Institute. He spoke about it at a fundraising event very recently in which he talked about the threats to democracy. And I think sometimes the press has ridiculed him, the people who are just interested in horse race politics, who's up, who's down, haven't taken it seriously enough, but he's right. And I think the more we talk about this, the more we explain to people how this plays out in their daily lives. I think what Ian said was really important. If you are a CEO, you have an interest in not having some belligerent dictator who is going to have your company in the stockade, is going to have you under investigation, is going to apply the regulatory and tax rules differently to you than your competitors. So therefore, you have an interest in democracy. And I realize there are many, many people in society who just want to keep their heads down. They don't want the hassle. They don't want the exposure. They don't want the attention. They don't want the mean social truth or truth social uh, postings. But you can't keep what you have. You can't have a functioning democracy unless you have some skin in the game and you're actually working towards that fundamental democracy. And I would say this. There is a lot that Democrats, independents, pro-democracy people can do. But ultimately, it is going to take Republicans to figure out themselves that this is not a good deal for them either, that they don't get what they want by having a crazy person, a lawbreaker, a belligerent figure at the head of their movement. 
And the way they figure that out is when they lose. And I think people expecting someone to magically appear as a white horse for the Republican Party so that they will finally come to their senses, so that they'll have, you know, Chris Christie is going to ride to their rescue, or Nikki Haley is going to ride to the rescue. Well, I don't think so. I don't think people feel the need to change unless they're not successful in what they're doing. And they have been successful with Donald Trump in limited doses, and that's why they keep going back to the well. As soon as they get the idea this is a loser strategy, they're going to keep losing, then the donors get disaffected, then the insiders want to try something new, then the electeds start hedging their bets. So they have to lose. They have to lose over and over again. It's not going to be solved in a single election. And I made that mistake. You probably made that mistake too. And thinking, oh, thank goodness, 2020, Biden's elected, we're out of the woods. We're not out of the woods. These people have to lose a lot before they decide to give up the ghost of totalitarianism, of stoking the racial divide in America. So it is exhausting it's tiring, it's distressing, it's debilitating, but it's necessary. So in keeping with the suggestions that Ian and I threw out there, get off social media, go volunteer someplace, go reach out to your neighbor and treat them decently and get involved in some local efforts and take a Take your role, take your role seriously as a defender of democracy. If you like this program, please tell your friends and have them listen and follow. They can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. 